0: Good morning. Good morning, and a special welcome to the Moody and Wheaton students returning. We're uh, very glad to have you, and really, I personally love having you as part of our church. It's a great blessing that you're all with us this morning. And as Aaron mentioned, we are in the second message in a series entitled Becoming a Multiplying Church, and I have the privilege of speaking this morning on the topic of the power to multiply, or to put it another way, I get to explore from where we draw the power to become a multiplying church. And as a church, our vision to multiply comes from the Lord Jesus himself. As before his ascension, he commanded his disciples in Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So the command of Jesus here is to multiply. And if you're just joining us this week, as Father Aaron said two weeks ago, the command is for all of his disciples to share true teachings about Jesus as well as his real presence so that others will repent and likewise become his disciples. But if you reflect on the words of Jesus, it would seem that he laid an almost intolerable burden on his disciples. Think about the power required to accomplish this command. Relatively speaking, very few people had ever heard of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Maybe they numbered in the thousands or tens of thousands out of you know, maybe 100 million people total on the face of the earth. And of course, Jesus had some very controversial teachings as well. These things weren't very quick to be embraced. Things like, there's only one way to be reconciled to God, complete submission to his lordship, that he is God in the flesh. Jesus was executed for these teachings, and now he wanted his disciples to share them with the entire world. So what kind of power would it take to fulfill this charge to multiply? To overcome the fear over what would happen to you? To start with a band of maybe 120 followers in Acts 2, and multiply to every corner of the entire earth." And so maybe you're beginning to feel some anxiety about these things this morning, because as a local church family, just as might have seemed for Jesus' early disciples, the task to multiply could seem daunting for any number of reasons. Maybe you're beginning to feel some anxiety about this charge to multiply, especially as it relates to our shift to two services on September 10th. We want to add a second service to make space for more people to come hear about Jesus. This might lead to worries over questions like, what will be asked of me? What will I need to sacrifice? And will the church that I've come to love be the same? Or maybe the idea of sharing true teachings about Jesus with your friends or coworkers makes you anxious over how they will respond. Will they think I'm some sort of zealot? Right? What are they going to make of me after that? Or maybe you simply feel anxious by having another obligation placed onto your already busy schedule. It's a long-term commitment to another person to help them to help teach them all that Jesus has commanded. It's often not just a one-time conversation. And so this morning what I want to say is that there's two objects of anxiety that you can focus on when it comes to a large-scale goal or task, like the one we have taken on to become a multiplying church. The first object of anxiety is over the effort required. The second is over the outcome, and both have to do with power, or more specifically, a perceived lack of power. Either you're anxious over the effort you must exert to accomplish a task I have so much to do this week, how am I going to get it all done? Or you're anxious over the outcome, right? You're anxious over the fact that you have no power over the outcome of a specific thing you've been asked to do, right? Things like sickness, global conflict, issues with interpersonal relationship, these are all things that have to do with power or perceived lack of power and our inability to control the outcome. So oftentimes our anxiety is over both effort and outcome. For our purposes this morning, both anxiety over effort and outcome can be defined like this. Anxiety is fear, which is born out of a perceived lack of power that is turned inward on ourselves. Again, anxiety is fear which is born out of a perceived lack of power that is turned inward on ourselves. And so if you turn in your bulletin with me to Acts 2 this morning, we witnessed something strange. We are told in verse 1 that the disciples are held together in a room. And you would think that after Jesus' command to multiply, they would have split up the known world into quadrants and headed out into separate directions. So are they huddled up in this room because they're anxious and they're scared? Well, no, they're not waiting because they're anxious or sluggards, because they're actually following the very directive of Jesus. See, both the Gospels of Matthew and Luke tell us that Jesus did not simply command his disciples to multiply and then wish them well. Instead, in Luke, we are told Jesus added this after his command to multiply. And behold I'm sending this promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus said I will send you the source of all the power you will need to accomplish what I've asked of you. This means Jesus command to multiply which began with the disciples 2000 years ago and which we are continuing which we are attempting to continue to this day is not powered by grit or self-determination. The multiplication of disciples is not dependent on our own power as seen in church growth strategies or attempts to manufacture a dynamic and relevant church experience. Instead, the disciples are told to wait, not for a great idea or burst of inspiration, but wait for the power to multiply, which is provided by the person of the Holy Spirit. We are told that the Holy Spirit is a gift from Jesus to his followers for the purpose of fulfilling this command to multiply. And so what I want you to hear this morning is that the Holy Spirit provides the means to accomplish all that God will ever ask of us. Again, the Holy Spirit provides the means to accomplish everything God will ever ask of us. But let me add that all God ever asks from us is faithful obedience. He does not command results, only faithfulness. So in Acts 2, we find the disciples huddled together after receiving the commands of Jesus to both multiply and wait for power from on high. And at this point, it's likely a number, maybe around 120 people. And they're sitting in a room during the Feast of Pentecost. This feast was a time to celebrate and thank God for the fruits of the harvest. And the Old Testament commanded that the sacrifices be made in the temple during the celebration of this feast. And so it required a trip to Jerusalem, bring together Jewish people from all over the world. Pentecost occurred 50 days after Passover. And so we see a connection between the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, a connection between his death to save us from judgment and bring us to the fa- into the family of God with the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost in part to multiply this family. We can enter into the family of God because of the work of the true Passover lamb and it is the work of the Holy Spirit to expand this family. The story continues in verses 2 through 4 as we see where the power to multiply comes from. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterances. These signs that we read about this morning, these signs, the rushing wind and appearance of fire, were symbols in the Old Testament of the presence of God. So Luke is alerting us that God has entered into the room in a unique way. It is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, being fully God who enters into the presence of the disciples. And we are told that the disciples were then filled with the Holy Spirit. Scripture teaches us that all people who repent of their sins and accept the lordship of Christ, all people who become his disciples, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That he dwells with all of Jesus' disciples in an intimate, personal, and permanent way, coming in part to guide and lead us towards becoming more like Jesus. But something additional is happening here. And we know this in part because not every person who becomes a Christian begins to speak in utterances, given to them by the Spirit, nor do they experience a rush of wind or tongues of fire. Here the Holy Spirit comes to permanently dwell with the disciples, but also to provide the power or the means the disciples need to fulfill the call of Christ to multiply. And moving down to verse 11, we learn more about the utterances that the Holy Spirit gave the disciples to speak. They were uttering, the text literally says, the greatness of God. And moreover, people from all over the known world recognized what they were saying in their own native languages. So this means that after the coming of the Holy Spirit, the disciples moved out of the room they were in and likely came near the temple while still speaking the utterances of the greatness of God. And people who gathered in celebration of the Feast of Pentecost were gathered, were drawn to them because they could understand what they were saying in their own languages. And so what we're seeing is that the Holy Spirit enabled the disciples to have a conscious experience of God's greatness. It was a real conscious experience in which he revealed to them the beauty, majesty, and glory of God. And they began to proclaim this greatness. And those who heard the greatness of God being expressed in their own languages were said to be bewildered, amazed, and astonished. So picture this for a moment. You're walking with your friends in the blistering Jerusalem heat, and suddenly you hear a familiar language. If you've spent any time overseas, you know how exciting this can be. I recognize what he's saying. Right? And you begin to walk over, but you notice others from all over the known world are walking over with you. And speaking in the lingua franca with one another, you realize that they are hearing the exact same things that you are hearing in their native language. And soon a crowd of thousands has gathered around the disciples. And they begin to ask, what does this mean? Another way of saying, what exactly is going on here? Or what are we to make of this? Now, that's a good question for us this morning. What are we to make of this? Well, what we witness in Acts 2 is the Holy Spirit providing the means to accomplish what Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, asks of all of his disciples, both then and now. See, over the call to multiply, we grow anxious over effort and outcome because we have limited power. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, being fully God, has no such limitations. He is infinitely powerful and can never exhaust his supply. There are no days when the Holy Spirit is caught off guard or is emotionally drained. He intimately cares for us and will supply the means to accomplish all God will ever ask of us. So what do the disciples do next? They're out near the temple surrounded by thousands of people from all over the world who are eager to make sense of what is, that, what is going on, right? Why can we hear in our own language what they're uttering? What are we to make of this? Well, if you think about this, right, after a child experiences something extraordinary, whether it's an animal they have never seen or a natural wonder like a waterfall, you don't have to tell them what to do next. No child looks at a rhino for the first time or the roaring waters of Niagara Falls you know, and then taps their dad on the shoulder and says, Dad, what's the appropriate response? This is amazing experience. Right? Uh, no, a child who experiences something extraordinary can't wait to tell everyone about it. Mom, Dad, anybody, you got to come see this. right? It's amazing. You're not going to believe it. And this is what happens with the disciples in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit has allowed the disciples to experience the greatness of God. And after this experience of the greatness of God, Peter can't wait to share about Jesus with those who have gathered around. Like a child, no one has to tell Peter what to do next. He and the disciples are now ready and excited to fulfill the command of Jesus because they waited on the Holy Spirit who provided the power or the means to multiply. The Holy Spirit chose the day of Pentecost when Jewish people from all over the known world would be present. The Holy Spirit revealed the greatness of God The Holy Spirit enabled the utterances of the disciples to be heard in multiple languages. It was His work, and the disciples are now ready and eager and excited to fulfill the command of Jesus to multiply. There's no need to be anxious because there's no concern over power. So, is this how you feel this morning? Ready, eager, and excited to fulfill the command of Jesus to multiply? Are you anxious? Maybe this morning you feel like Harold Abrams, who was a real-life athlete portrayed in the film Chariots of Fire. Abrams was a British sprinter. Probably knew you weren't getting out of this morning because that was some British history. Uh, so here you go. He was a British sprinter who became absolutely obsessed with winning the 100-meter dash at the 1924 Olympic Games. A worthy goal in many ways, but one that absolutely and completely consumed him. And part is he had no control over the final outcome. As the film progresses, he loses any sense of joy in regards to running or training. And at one point, he has this to say to his rival, Aubrey. You're a brave, compassionate, kind, content man. That is your secret, contentment. I'm 24, and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what I'm chasing. So here we see a man who has a clear goal, an obvious objective, but he doesn't have any contentment. He becomes anxious terribly, terribly anxious over an outcome he has no control over. Prior to the 100-meter finals at the 1924 Games, he says this, In one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide, with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? All those long hours spent training, even spurning the woman he loved to focus on running, the entire identity he had constructed, he only got 10 seconds to see if it was all worth it. The outcome of the race had become his identity. I'm either a winner or a loser, a failure or a success based on this 10 seconds. And so as he waits for the race, he becomes incredibly anxious. It all comes down to power, his personal power, his grit and determination. And so he waits not with peace, but with terrible anxiety. And it's not hard to extrapolate that he not only dreaded the time leading up to the race, but how could he enjoy the race itself? But the followers of Jesus don't have to be anxious about either outcome or effort in regards to this call to multiply. The power to fulfill the command of Jesus to multiply comes from the Holy Spirit and not from ourselves. All that is required of us is faithful obedience, a childlike trust in the Holy Spirit. Moving back to Acts, Peter stands up to address the crowd that has gathered after the Holy Spirit has supernaturally brought about the circumstances in which those around him are eager to listen. And here's how he begins, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Probably tongue in cheek, he says, we're not uttering because we are drunk, as some of you claimed. It's only 9 a.m., right? Instead, what you're seeing here is the fulfillment of an Old Testament promise that after the coming of the Messiah, after the coming of Jesus Christ, God said this in the book of Joel. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the lord comes the great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the lord shall be saved so peter is saying to the crowd that has gathered what you're witnessing is the promise god made in the book of joel right the outpouring of his spirit and with the outpouring of the spirit and the accompanying miracles comes a great promise. Verse 21 says that when this time comes, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter extrapolates on this. But who is this Lord? That's the question he's trying to answer. And he explains, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So the Spirit brought about the circumstances in which people from all over the known world were ready and eager to listen to Peter. All that was then required of Peter to do to fulfill the command to multiply was to share what he himself already knew and experienced. Peter shared true teachings about Jesus and his real presence with those who gathered. He made it known that Jesus is Lord, that he is both a suffering servant and messianic king, that he was crucified according to the plan of God, and that he was raised up by God, conquering sin and evil and death. And at the end of Peter's sermon, which is imprinted in your bulletin, we read the response of those who gathered around. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So here we see the Holy Spirit moving Peter to multiplying the church. And let me say that I know this morning when some of you hear about the the phrase multiplying church, when you hear about our desire to become a multiplying church, shivers run down your spine. I've spoken to people here today who are deeply hurt or were deeply hurt by churches that adopted some sort of aggressive growth strategy. People became quotas and spiritual realities were substituted for proven outcomes. Let me just say this morning, I'm deeply sorry for how you suffered, and it wasn't right. For many here, when you hear talk about of a multiplying church, it seems like the least authentically church-related task that Emmanuel could be involved in. But from Acts 2 onward, we see that every healthy local church, or every local congregation of believers in a particular city, sought to, sought to multiply. They sought to make more disciples of Jesus. So our vision to multiply does not come from a TED Talk. It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We want to obey him and so follow the example of the early church. To become like the early church means more, but definitely not less, than trusting in the power of the Spirit to multiply. And in Acts 2, this meant 3,000 new church members in a single day. So I want to ask this morning to people who are struggling, to people who are anxious, to people who are fearful, to people who are wondering, is Emmanuel going corporate? Right? Is this a vision for how we could multiply that you could get behind? I'm, of course, not promising tongues of fire or miracles of speech, but it is a vision where we seek to fulfill the command to multiply by trusting in the power and the work of the Holy Holy Spirit. Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who provides the means to accomplish everything God will ever ask of us. But how do we allow the Holy Spirit to work through us? Or better put, how can we join in with the Holy Spirit and the work he is doing to multiply disciples? Well, another pastor had this to say, being guided and led by the Spirit is not a matter of feeling, it is a matter of asking. Christians are commanded in Ephesians to not get drunk with wine, for this is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Furthermore, we are told in 1 John, and this is the confidence which we have before him, that... If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked of him. So what does this mean? It doesn't mean we can conjure or control the Holy Spirit like he's a genie. But it does mean the Bible commands us to be led by the Spirit. And the Bible also promises us that anything we ask in line with God's desires will be granted to us. So all we have to do is ask. But there is a caveat as if it is not a sincere request when we ask the Spirit to lead, guide, and power us at Emmanuel, if we have no intention of following Him, but rather just asking Him to stamp our pre-made plans, right. this is not a sincere prayer. It's not one that the Holy Spirit will respond to. To follow the Spirit is to completely submit to His will. To ask the Spirit to guide you is a very dangerous prayer. As if it is sincerely prayed, it could cost you any number of plans that you have already made. But joining in with the work of the Holy Spirit to multiply disciples begins with submitting yourself to his will and asking for his guidance and his power. And if this is a prayer you're ready to pray this morning, during communion, we do invite you to meet and join one of our prayer ministers and ask the Lord, submit to him, ask the Holy Spirit to lead and guide you. He may direct you down a long-term path you never would have suspected. Perhaps it is more likely he wants to use you where you already are at your work or your school with family members, serving here at Emmanuel on a ministry team to make space for more people to join us on Sunday mornings. I want to ask you to be open to the Spirit to lead you to change education or career paths, but I can say confidently the Spirit wants you right now to make disciples wherever you presently are. And I would add that there's no conflict between caring about real, pressing physical needs in our city, caring about racial injustice and other systemic problems with sharing the gospel. You don't have to pick between acts of mercy or justice and evangelism. The command of Jesus in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, is for all Christians to multiply disciples. But we can do this wherever we are, and it's compatible with whatever else we might be doing. So please seek to right injustices and care for the present, pressing physical needs of all those in our city. But as you're doing this, share the good news of Jesus Christ. Multiply disciples wherever you are while whatever you might be doing. So how can we get started in this? How can we join in the work of the Spirit after we've prayed and invited him to lead us and guide us? Well, let me say again that this morning, we need your gifts here at Emmanuel. We need you to help us make a space for uptown and all of Chicago to come hear about Jesus on Sunday mornings. But we also need you outside of these four walls. But as my father has said many times, we don't need you to be weird for God, right? (laughs) So don't go on Amazon this afternoon and buy a bunch of Christian T-shirts, right? Failure to be exposed to the sun, S-O-N, may cause burning, right? That's not, not what we're asking of you. Uh, rather, as another pastor has put it, right, it often starts small. Start by inviting a friend you already know to church or small group. With people who don't yet know you're a Christian, you can also start small. Begin by just saying you went to church this past weekend. Right? And then the next week, you can state something you learned or experienced on a Sunday morning. The next time you can talk, you can say, Here's why my faith is important to me. Pray also that the Spirit would give you chances to be generous with your time and money. Actively look for opportunities to be self sacrificial towards your neighbors, friends, and coworkers who are not yet disciples of Jesus. And I would say, above all, be hospitable, as this is the best path to evangelism in our city. Make time in your week for your neighbors, care for them, love them, and invite them into your home. Don't force anything on anyone, but also don't shy away from the true teachings about Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and it is only by his blood that we can be reconciled to God. And so as we enter into a season where we seek to multiply disciples, may we do so not by trusting in our power, but in that of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who provides the means to accomplish everything God will ever ask for us. So we pray these things together this morning in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.